Hey, Sarah. Yes, Josh? Are you ready? I think so. Great. But before we start, we here at the Puppa Pod, along with Dixon Place, stand with love in solidarity with Black, Indigenous, and persons of color in our communities and across the country against racism, white supremacy, and police brutality. And for more information and specifics on our respective anti-racism statements and plans of action, please visit DixonPlace.org and ShakeOnTheLake.org to find out how we're listening, learning, and working within our communities. Black Black Lives Lives Matter. Matter. My name is Robin Prohart, and I think puppetry is intuitive. You spend a lot of time watching people move and watching the world move, and I think that if once you kind of tap into translating it into objects, it becomes kind of intuitive. Puppetry is hard because there's just so much stuff to keep track of. <laughs> Hello, everyone, and welcome again to another episode of The Puppet Pod, the podcast in which we attempt to somehow explore a visual medium through an auditory one. My name is Josh Rice, and once again, I am here with my co-host, Sarah Stabley. Sarah, how goes it? Oh, it's going great. Going great. I'm covered in mosquito bites because I just came back from a camping trip, but uh, other than that, you know, if this is a this is an audio podcast, you can't see me covered in mosquito bites. We can't see you itching and, and in pain. Uh, how was your adventures in the woods, in the mountains? It was great. It was yeah. it was absolutely awesome. I got to swim in a beautiful lake below some beautiful mountains. Got got a few thunderstorms. Had to make a really quick shelter out of tarp and branches, but it was great. It was awesome. Well, uh, I know for people that may have listened to some earlier episodes, you might also know that this is a podcast that is about puppetry, but we talk about animals often. Sarah, did Mm -hmm. you see any interesting animals in your mountain time adventures? I saw otters for the first time in real life. I had never seen otters in the wild. I love an otter. It was so cool. Were they swimming? Yeah, yeah, they were. Um, and I thought I saw another one right in front of my boat, but it turned out to be a squirrel swimming across the river. <laughs> I've never seen a squirrel swim before. It was so weird. <laughs> That's really amazing. I always thought like the otters were like the sea version of a squirrel. And then here we are. We have a seafaring squirrel in this mountain lake. A very intrepid squirrel. I'm assuming that something was chasing it to make it desperate enough to swim across a river. But uh, yeah, I saw that. Saw bald eagles, lots of fish, lots and lots and lots of bugs. And I think that's it. Raccoons. Saw a lot of raccoons. Chipmunks. Chipmunk bit its way through my backpack. That was great. Wow. These animals are very daring. Chipmunks, man. The real problem. Well, I'm glad there were no snakes. There was one snake. There was one snake. We saw a river snake. And it like just kind of slithered past our boat. It was really beautiful. It was like bright emerald green and tan. It was really gorgeous. It was probably poisonous as all hell, but you know, whatever. It's pretty. I feel like the most dangerous place to encounter a snake is the water. I think you're right. How's our, uh, where's Waldo? How's he doing? The snake in the theater. Uh, So once again, for people that may not know, or if you have listened, this is your update. Uh, There's a snake that uh, has somehow escaped into our theater and yet to be found. Yet to be found. So I'm starting to think maybe the snake isn't there at all, but it also is probably just loving life in the dark, musty basement, perhaps. Maybe that's the opposite of snakes, though. They might, they're like hot rocks, right? Maybe. I guess it depends on the snake. I guess so. Yeah, maybe every snake's a little different. Anyway, no sign of the snake. It still doesn't mean that I'm not terrified every time we walk in into the dark theater until we turn the lights on. But uh, no signs of the California king snake that mm-hmm. is... We think in the theater somewhere. Well, until we find that, what are we going to do? Well, until we find that, what we're going to do today, at least, is talk to another amazing puppet artist. Uh, I'm so actually very pumped, thrilled, and excited to talk to Robin Frohart today. Robin, how are you? Hi, I'm doing okay. Yep, hanging in there. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's. I feel like I keep running into the same problem i don't quite know how to greet people in this covid world because you say how are you and we're all experiencing the same thing so i'm always a little like oh shit that's not how you 
say hi to people anymore. Like uh, the answer is usually the same. People are actually answering that question now. Normally it's like, hey, how, hi, how are you? Good. Everyone goes, good. Yeah, great. How are you? Fine. Okay, cool. And you move on. Now every time you ask someone that, they're like, you know, I'm okay. Hanging in there. Yeah. Surviving. Yeah. So people are actually hearing that question and answer. <laughs> That's great. It's, it's an amazing thing. How have you been doing in this uh, pandemic times? I know you're kind of splitting time between the city and, and outside of the city. I'm so curious how, how it's been going for you relatively concerning all of the other things. I mean, I feel very lucky to be able to, you know, to be in good health and surviving and having a little escape pod in the woods has been really helpful. Um, so yeah, I've been back and forth between um, upstate and the city. <clears throat> and so, you know, it's just, the summer is beautiful. So I'm trying to just take advantage of as much nature as I possibly can. And sometimes I'm great and sometimes I'm bad and, you know, just like everybody. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm curious for you as an artist during this insane time, and I know every artist is experiencing it in their own way. Um, how have you felt as far as motivations to make things or to respond to what's happening in the world and all the different fronts that, that one could respond to it? Um, I feel pretty uninspired. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's actually been really hard for me to work creatively. Uh, it's, there's a lot of like drag <laughs> on my creative process right now. Um, which is crazy because I just always, whenever I'm working on something, I always feel like I never have enough time and all I want is just more time to like really dive into the details or do this thing. And now all I have is time and it's just kind of like, it's not a very motivating. Yeah. So I've been really more into doing like, fixing up this house. So, you know, I, at this point I'd rather like sand the deck than be creative. Like I just kind of want to dive into like manual labor. Um, but I'm trying to like dig myself out of that. I think it's kind of sinking in how this is a little bit longer because it's going to last a little longer than I thought. So I better find a way to get creative because this has been my new life. Yeah, I, I feel similarly in that gardening projects have become a new uh, hobby in my life. And there's a lot of downed trees in the area that we're staying. So I've been doing a lot of wood chopping, which has been a nice way to work out energy and that manual labor thing as well. You know, there's not much to think about when you're chopping wood. Um, so that's also been really nice. And, and this podcast has also been a really different way to talk to people, at least about arts and puppet people specifically about how one even gets into this weird <laughs> world of puppetry. Um I guess, why don't we start there then? What is your puppet origin story? It's always something I'm curious about is what yeah. brings people into this medium or this art form. Well, I studied art in school. I didn't finish school. And I, I studied painting, actually. And I, you know, I really, like, love the craft of making and painting and sculpting. Um, I definitely, like, loved learning any kind of new skill or any kind of, like, technical knowledge. Um, and I, and I, but I just really, I loved to paint, but I didn't know what to paint. I didn't have like an idea. I didn't also was young and I was like, I don't really have anything to say, you know? Yeah. Um, and so I dropped out of school and moved to San Francisco and I ended up getting a job at this bar called the Odeon, which was, uh, Tim only existed for a few years in the early two thousands. And, um, my earphones died and it's going through my computer. Is that going to change the quality of the... It sounds really clear. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so I got this job at the Odeon, which was open temporarily in the early 2000s. And it was a dive bar in the Mission District in San Francisco. And it was run by this character, Chicken John. And his he was like the ex-guitarist for Gigi Allen and had this whole like punk-like backstory. Whoa. Uh, but anyway, he opened this bar and he just wanted it to be a venue for odd and unlikely entertainment so the rule was like no bands no djs but anything else basically so it was like 
weird one-man bands and burlesque acts and puppet shows and like weird performance art and stuff. So it was just a really fascinating way to be introduced to a bunch of different freaky artists. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so there was a puppet show that came through town from Seattle and they did a, a Charles Bukowski story about necrophilia uh, uh, <laughs> in puppets. And um, I don't know where else they would have performed if the Odeon didn't exist at the time. But uh, I remember seeing it and just being like, oh my gosh. And the, the puppets were really beautiful. They were made by this guy, Adam Ende, who has been making puppets in the Seattle area for a million years. Um, but it was sort of like this living painting. Everything was very colorful and beautiful and they were like very small boon raccoon style puppets and the movement was really lovely and I just had never seen anything like that before and I didn't really know like that puppetry could be like that or grown-ups or dark or mysterious or so kind of alive and artistic and so I got really excited about it at that point and I think started making a few little things, but not really. But then Adam and I became friends and he worked for, uh, he spent a lot of his time in Taipei working for this place called the Green Community, um, which, yeah, I got a lot of stories. <laughs> They're <laughs> awesome. They're great. They're great stories. Community was started by uh, this guy, Gordon Tsai. Gordon is his English name, but he's a, a Taiwanese man who, Somewhat wealthy, owned like a couple city blocks in on in the outskirts of Taipei, um, but he was quite eccentric. And he had like traveled to Seattle and seen the there was like a solstice parade that happens in Seattle. Uh, that's just like one of these big freaky hippie puppety parades, and he had just never seen anything like that before. And it was very un Taiwanese and like. He was like, this is crazy. I love all these wild people and all their weird jay, and I really want this to happen in Taiwan. And so he hired a bunch of the people from Seattle to come in. And that's sort of where I started making giant, I made a couple giant puppets and met all these other puppet artists. And that's kind of where I really was like, oh, this is what I want to do. And then when I came back from Taiwan, I started a, a puppet company called the Apocalypse Puppet Theater with a couple friends. That's kind of how I got into it. <laughs> That's an incredible start. And I love the idea of uh, puppetry being a living painting. That's yeah. a really apt description. I wonder too, I, I was looking on your website earlier today and I was uh, looking at some of the photos of the apocalyptic project that you were talking about. Can you yeah. describe for people what that would look like if it like rolled up in front of you and they were getting ready to see a show? We made this stagecoach, stagecoach, I'm using air quotes, <laughs> um, and what it was was like a stagecoach that was pulled by a team of eight bicycles instead of horses all rigged together, and then the back, it was open in the back, and it was like a stage, and so we would put on the shows from there, and we had like a shadow screen that came down, or we built little puppet sets inside, and it was very, like, you know, Old timey. <laughs> yeah, uh, it was the early two thousand. <laughs> Everyone was old timey then, <laughs> and um, yeah, and most of all of our shows were about the end of the world, which I guess all of my shows still are. <laughs> it's a theme, and uh, yeah, so it's very on brand, like what's happening right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so we did. We had like a shadow puppet version of the book of Revelation that was really offensive and <laughs> we had a shadow puppet show about Ragnarok which is the Norse sort of mythology of the end of the world and that's actually where the character of Frank came from that puppet theater we had all these little 15 minute shows and then in between this like crazy guy with an end is near sign would just kind of like walk by and that version of Frank was like much crazier uh, yeah. and, uh, much like older <laughs> and but so then years later I was like oh I wonder what this guy's backstory is that's a really interesting trajectory of that one character <laughs> and to see him come back and have like a full show made about him is amazing I'm curious 
because I think this is something, you know, especially in our current time and place, but even back in the early 2000s, what draws you to that theme of the apocalypse or the end of the world or, you know, these kind of future future stories? Yeah, I'm, I'm not really sure. I think I might have to go to therapy to figure out what. <laughs> Um, I'm not exactly sure what draws me to stories about the end of the world, uh, but I know that we as a culture definitely have a, like, a fascination um, with it. You know, this like post-apocalyptic aesthetic is definitely something that everyone's kind of fascinated with. Like, um, I don't know, maybe it's like we don't want to think about the world without us going on without us. So yeah. we're like, oh yeah, it's gonna end, or I'm gonna experience the end of the world. Or like I'm gonna get to see how this story like wraps up, you know? Like I don't know. Um but yeah, I don't know. I it's I think it's also just like a you know being just kind of dissatisfied with the world and and like fantasizing about its own destruction like definitely fantasizing about the collapse of our society and fantasizing about capitalism falling apart and also an acknowledgement that all of this is very fragile and it definitely could all end and there's no reason why terrible things can't happen to us <laughs> yeah yeah and here we are and here we are um yeah, I feel like so many of these conversations that we've had with artists recently too have been like, oh my God, the fragile way in which everything is held together is so tenuous. And now we're really seeing it fraying and that capitalism is like such a big part of so many of the yeah. problems that we're all going yeah. through. Yeah, finding, finding answers through all of that um, I'm hoping uh, exist on the other side of this whenever, whenever that other side is, and however we get there. Uh, um, we'll decide how we bring down capitalism uh, in just a few more moments when we come back with more Robin Frillhart. How's that for a transition? <laughs> Let's face it, puppetry is hard. It's even harder during a pandemic. The form is predicated upon people being in very close proximity to one another to puppeteer something and having an audience to see it. But the field persists, adapts, and pivots. And the New York State Puppet Festival and Shake on the Lake are doing just that in presenting their brand new online puppetry series, NYSPF at Home. This series of brand new short puppetry works made for an online, on-screen audience features some of our favorite artists, many of whom have been and will be featured on the Puppet Pod, including Andy Manjuk and Dorothy James with Bill's 44th, a Zoom birthday, Just Another Lynching, an American horror story by the artist Jagedo, Out of Office by Emma Wiseman and Emily Zemba, and a brand new multimedia puppetry piece from Tom Lee. NYSPF at Home brings puppet artists from their respective quarantines to you in your home starting in October and running through January. For more information and virtual tickets, please visit www.NewYorkStatePuppetFestival.org. That's www.NewYorkStatePuppetFestival.org. Puppetry is hard. But watching it in your home is easy with NYSPF at home. And we are back with more Robin Frohart. Robin, I know that this is always a funny question for artists when they get asked it. And I'm curious when someone asks you, hey, Robin, and they're meeting you maybe for the first time. What do you do? How do you describe uh, your work or what, what you do to people? It depends on who's asking. Try to read the room. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I get the sense that it's if it's definitely someone else who's creative, I'll be like, I make puppets, and you know, most of the time, people are like, whoa, cool, you know. But if there's no need to be honest, sometimes I will just say I'm an artist, and they'll say what kind of work you make, and I'll say landscapes, <laughs> like in a cat, for example. <laughs> 
<laughs> I just, That's like, awesome. Yeah, I don't. It's too much to explain, and I don't want to have to like. It's an investment of time. It seems too like a lot of uh, how you came to it, the work is just figuring it out. Like you knew some people, they introduced you to some things, and it was a lot of do-it-yourself figuring out of a lot of this stuff. And I'm curious for people that don't really know much about puppetry, how that can actually be an asset to it, because so much of puppetry is the actual doing of things. So I just wonder if you could maybe talk about how that maybe helped inform your process and how you got to be uh, where you are with some of the puppet work you've made. Yeah, I didn't have any formal training. And I, when we first started making puppet shows in San Francisco, like we didn't know anybody else who was making those kinds of puppet shows. I learned a lot from Adam Ende, person who took me to Taiwan. And um, so, yeah, learning, learning as I go, but not really understanding the things I was doing as I was doing them. So basically a lot of it was just like having this vision and then trying to have the materials catch up to that and learning how to do things as I go. Yeah, I would certainly say a lot of what you have made is certainly incredibly inventive and I know for some people, the barrier to entry to puppetry is sometimes the materials or the cost of materials. Yet, I feel in a lot of your work, you're able to make a lot of things from stuff that is around, whether that's cardboard or plastic bags, for example. So I'm curious if you could maybe talk more about the materials aspect of the work and how material can inform the work, and especially with the plastic bag store, uh, it's certainly very much a part of that piece. Um, well, I really like limited to materials. I find that it's very like, that I, I get a lot more ideas if they're like, you have to make, you know, I feel like once there's like a limitation in like that, or yeah, it's like only things that are in the grocery store, but you have to use plastic bags. Then I feel like there's infinite ideas, but when it's like, okay, you can make anything out of everything. But, and then I'm kind of like paralyzed. Yeah, having having too much of that makes it like so hard to focus on the story <laughs> the story you're trying to tell. Yeah. yeah, and having the materials the way, I think people react a lot to recognizable materials too. Like I kind of either want things to be, their materiality to be very obvious. Like you look at something like, oh, that's made of cardboard. Like people have this like, oh, cardboard. They have this like connection to it. And I either want that or I want the materials to totally disappear. Like I don't want you to know what Frank is necessarily made of, you know. So I kind of like both ends of that spectrum. Yeah, there's, I like that uh, embracing the limitation, which I think is a great rule for any artist and anything is out of limitation comes creativity. And yeah, I think embracing whatever you have around you and just being able to work with that, which so much of puppetry is just made of junk. It's whatever is lying around in your shop or you see in the trash on your way home that day or whatever it might be. And I think if people can tinker, I guess, finding the ability to tinker and like you did and like so many of us did, just kind of getting in a room and building something with tape and hot glue and seeing what kind of craft you can get is part of the joy of puppetry, I think, in a lot of ways. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about um, the Puppet Lab, uh, because I know you were a participant in the Puppet Lab um, earlier on in, in your career, and now you're uh, part of a, a team with Lake Simons that helps co-direct the lab and that's a really amazing journey and I'm curious if you could talk a little bit about what the lab is for people that don't know and then the importance of it for you uh, as an artist. Yeah so the Puppet Lab uh, is a program through St. Anne's Warehouse and what it is is it's, uh, it's a group of about eight artists are chosen every year who are developing a new work and we meet as a group and discuss process, give each other feedback, share progress. Um, and then at the end, it results in a, a, a weekend long festival of, of work in progress showing. So each artist shows up to 20 minutes 
of the work that they've been developing over this time period. And so when I came to New York, I applied and I, that's where I started the pigeoning. Um, and, you know, it went from like maybe a kind of an idea. I think I even just wanted to be a part of Puppet Lab and I was like, oh, I better think of an idea. And it's, that's, um, that's kind of what I came up with. And so really it went from nothing to a, to a show over that time period. And it was so incredibly helpful uh, to be able to have this interaction with other artists and to uh, get feedback and puppetry advice, especially from Matt Atchison, who was running it at the time. And it was really like the birth of that show and the birth of the last few years of my life, for sure. Um, and so when I was asked to co-direct it, it was, I was super honored and excited because it's, it, I, it was such an important tool for me to get my work off the ground. Uh, and I was definitely excited to like help other people in that way. Um, and of course, we were supposed to premiere everyone's work in June, but we haven't. But um, we've actually still been meeting every Monday on Zoom. Um, and, you know, we're not making as much progress with the work as, as we would have been, but we are still maintaining that connection and that through line. And once performances are allowed to happen again, that uh, the Puzzle Lab will be back. Uh, have you all been... Or has anybody taken uh, the advantage of showing anything on Zoom, whether it's like performance pieces or I'm sure they've also shown work in progress as far as what they're building, but has anyone tried anything performative over Zoom? Yeah, I th well, I think that they're working on that. I think a yeah. couple of them are like developing that and figuring that out a little bit. Um, you know, we thought about developing digital content based on the work, but I also feel like there's a lot of that happening right now and everyone's leaping to create digital and zoom stuff for people but i i feel very protective about the puppet lab and i don't want it to, i want it to be a performance and if we have to wait like we have to wait that's an important part of it it seems that puppetry is one of the art forms that is suited to be able to make this transition toward digital and through some of your your work in film uh that you've done um that that certainly uh is one way that you've been able to kind of bridge both of these worlds uh but i'm curious for you if you could talk about i guess the advantages of puppetry being this live analog art form versus this digital one why this transition could be good but also maybe not the best way to experience a puppet show yeah well i just feel like they're two totally different worlds you know i also think that you're watching someone animate something in front of you is like a magic trick yeah um, but like the digital world is just full of magic tricks that you're and you're just so used to it like you've seen you can watch and people can digitally create anything to happen on the screen uh, and in order to create that even compares to that would be a tremendous amount of work. But there's something, the, the analog and sort of magic trick of just like, you know, animating something right before your eyes or being in the same room with it. I think it's just two totally different experiences. Yeah, we uh, were going to, or supposed to have our festival up here this summer as well. And, uh, there was a lot of talk about what we should do and if we, if we should try to make it a, a digital festival. And I really appreciated our, our board president, um, Rose, who said, you know what, I will support whatever you all want to do, but puppetry is best experienced live. And, you know, I'm not a puppeteer, but I know that based on what I've seen. So I just want you all to take that into consideration. And I really appreciated that this person who has a relationship with the arts in a really major way, but isn't necessarily a puppeteer, maybe had never really seen a lot of puppetry until, you know, she joined our board, but she really saw the value of what you just described, this, this live experience of watching this magic happen before your eyes. And if you can get an audience to believe for just a second that this object is actually breathing, then holy moly, like we're in a really exciting shared space to then try other things. Um, 
what, in your opinion, I guess, do you think that moment when you can get people to believe that a thing is alive, that can snowball, I think, to other things that you can get across to people. And I'm curious for you, like, what is that opportunity uh, as artists or as people to experience the art? Like, it feels like there's something that starts to build after that, right? Yeah, well, I think people are more engaged and open um, when, um, I think people are more engaged and open when they watch puppetry because they're sort of, their brains are already invested because they're like, you know, believing this thing is alive. So they've already like, it's already, their brain is already doing the work. So I think that they're engaged in a way that audience like watching a, a live performer you are not. Um, you're also a little bit of the volume is turned down on certain parts of your brain. Like uh, I've always said like, you know, like you can't like judge a puppet, like your judgmental brain is turned off. You're not like, hmm, I don't know, like when a human actor walks on stage and sits down, I feel like you're watching, when you look at another human being, your brain's like, like you're categorizing them, you're reading them as a human being, and then you're like being like, I don't know, are they a good actor? Are they hot? Like, or do they remind me of someone? Do I think they're a good person? Or like, you know, like you have all these like thoughts, but you're never like that with a puppet. You're like, oh, I don't think he's a good actor, or I don't know if I like that. I wish they had hired a different puppet for this part. You know, like this guy's too much. You know, it's just like you're just like, oh, that is that being that is who that is so you, that part of your brain is kind of shut up and you're just like oh you're that character is is real and uh so you're a little bit more open to different kinds of ideas or whatever story that you're trying to tell yeah it seems it then allows puppets to or puppetry to tackle subject matter that a real yeah. actor you you might not necessarily want to hear or watch or sit through yeah and they're also like they're already symbols they already represent something so it's kind of easier to tell sort of allegorical or metaphorical stories they are these kind of metaphors they're already like and for a person they're like represent a person so everything that they do can be sort of um, metaphorical, if that makes yeah. sense. Yeah, yeah, which I think is an exciting place for us as artists to live. Is we, I know a lot of people prefer things that are a little more abstract, particularly puppet artists. I think that's why we get drawn to that form because it's so visual in so many ways, and there's a lot of metaphor. Versus, here's a lot of text. I'm going to tell you <laughs> the story through all of these words. Right. Um. <clears throat> uh. I wonder if we could go back a little bit to the pigeoning uh, because it's an incredibly amazing and fun piece that has had a very, very long life, which I think is rare for a puppet show. Uh, this show has been in some form or another going on for almost, is it six or seven years now for you? Uh, uh, yeah, I mean, I think the last show we did was last, was about a year ago. And so, yeah, about six years, five or six years at last. It was well, not consistently, but you know, it yeah. still has to live life. Yeah, and it will live again <laughs> for sure. For sure. Uh, did you ever think that when you were first making it that it would have this kind of impact? And if so, or if not, I mean, I know it's hard to know that. And in, in you're first working on it at the Puppet Lab, and you applied, and you had to like come up with an idea, and you weren't quite sure what it was. But to know that the show has been asked to come to all these places around the world, it must have some sort of lasting effect for people. And I'm curious if any of that was ever uh, part of the original uh, ideation of the piece and then how you've seen the meaning of it grow for you as you've seen other people see it. Um, well, it definitely wasn't... Well, I mean, always my... My, I think my dream forever was to be like, yeah, I, I mean, I was like, I want to make tour puppet shows around the world. Like, 
the idea of going to Europe and touring a show was like has always been a dream, and uh, travel travel with art is always my favorite and best thing. So of course it was my ultimate dream that it would have such a long life, and I definitely must have believed in it to push it to make it happen. <laughs> um, and but I've definitely never thought we would go to places like Egypt or Turkey or um, you know it's or Singapore uh, and yeah it's been incredible and I'm I didn't really understand how universal it was or how how different people would react to it or like it so much um, and it's definitely. And, and we continue to like it too so much. Like I think those of us who've been puppeteering it for so many years, like are just as in love with the show and the story as we ever were. Yeah. It, it feels clear to me to hear some of the stories from uh, Emma, who is a great puppeteer and in that show and, and my partner and uh, how much you all have fun just backstage making the puppets do things that no one else will see except uh, you yeah. all in that moment. Definitely that, uh, yeah, it's hard to imagine the pigeoning without that crew of people. So that's definitely a big part of the show is just all of us being together in our own secret language that we've developed over the years on the road. Yeah. Uh, well, why don't we uh, take another quick break and we'll, we'll talk more uh, with Robin Frohart. This episode of The Puppet Pod is brought to you by Dixon Place, New York City's most beloved downtown performance space for 35 years that brings you original theater, puppetry, circus arts, dance, visual art, and even podcasts about puppetry. That's right. Without Dixon Place, there would be no Puppet Pod. And starting October 17th and running throughout the month of October, the Raising Cane campaign is a series of celebratory, uncanny, interactive, virtual, and outdoor fundraising events that'll challenge your imagination, stimulate your senses, and comfort your soul. Whether you're partisan, bipartisan, or nonpartisan, the Raising Cane campaign offers something for everyone. From socially distant puppetry in a parking lot and a Lower East Side walking tour with real live performance to a mind-boggling virtual scavenger hunt, a very sexy talk show, a wacky cooking show, an online auction, and more. Presenting over 1,000 creators a year, Dixon Place inspires and encourages artists of all stripes and callings to take risks, generate new ideas, and execute new practices. Dixon Place has supported artists throughout the pandemic and, with your help, will continue into whatever shenanigans the future holds. Your donations and participation in the Raising Cane campaign will help sustain Dixon Place and make a future possible for artists and audiences alike. For more information and tickets, please visit DixonPlace.org. That's www.DixonPlace.org. Help keep the visionary fires burning at Dixon Place. The Puppet Pod. We are back with more of Robin. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about uh, what we just kind of touched on, which is the collaborative nature of puppetry, which I think... There's something unique about it in that certainly, you know, we're all up in each other's armpits and so close to one another, which is one way of really uh, getting close to a group of people physically, but also uh, in these other connected ways. And I'm curious for you if you could talk a little bit about why you like this form of collaboration. Well, it's really intense. and It definitely has to be with the right people. You know, there are things that so many people bring different things to the table. And so, you know, I, I couldn't create the pigeoning or the plastic bag store like on my own. I sort of develop these characters in my mind and I develop these stories, but I can't like tell you how to tell those stories. Like I know Frank's, <laughs> I know Frank's story arc, but I can't tell you like beat for beat what he's doing or like see the show in my head until I have uh, people physically acting it out. Um, you have to like work out the puppetry and how we tell his story like in the room. Um, it's not something I could do on my own. We have to physically try 
each gesture and see how it reads and um, and so it's like impossible basically for me to make my work alone at least in uh, on the stage yeah I do most of the film stuff by myself but um, these human characters bringing to life it requires definitely more than me and I really like the sentiment too that you want to do it with people that you trust but also you want to travel with. I feel similarly when I hire people to come up here and, and to spend summers up here. I want it to be with people that I like. And I want to spend time in a place that I love. And that really makes a difference too. Yeah. <laughs> what drew you to pigeons? Um, well, I, I, I started I, when, with that original Frank character from back, back in the day. We like made some funny video of him we shot some footage of him just like in the street in uh in san francisco and he was we made a few scenes where he was just interacting with these pigeons um and it was very funny and I, so i thought there was this interesting relationship between the two of them but i also thought about his sort of obsession with order and cleanliness and and how sometimes these birds two people represent something else you know yeah. And them built in the city, you know, the people's, in people's minds. So I thought they would be a good like agent of chaos in Frank's life. Yes. I like the idea of an agent of chaos being a really uh, useful tool in a puppet show, especially. Yeah. Um, I wonder if we could one of the I, we're we're running out toward the end of our time, but I wonder before we go if you could maybe talk a little bit about. Uh, the plastic bag store, which um, I felt lucky enough to be able to see a very early on version of it in North Carolina um, when you were in residency there. And uh, the show itself to me is I, one of my favorite things I've ever seen. And unfortunately, uh, had my tickets ready to go see it in April. And uh, of course, um, that all had was upended. Um, but I'm curious if you could maybe, it's an in tense emotional process for you i know because of how long you've spent on it um and then the way that you know just very quickly had a a, a flash of a moment and now it's just kind of been in hibernation in times square as an installation right now um but i just wonder if maybe you can Tell us a little bit about the genesis of the show, um, because it speaks to me, the themes of it speak so much to how I also feel kind of about the world and, you know, environmentalism and, and climate change. Um, but also it has these, just the puppetry of it is so delightful and the story is really incredible, but you're also saying so much with the piece. So I, I'm curious about the genesis until this you know, one evening that you got to have of it and, and where we are now with the show? Um, yeah, so, well, I, the original idea I got by watching someone bag and double bag and triple bag all my groceries that were already in bags, just like oh. the counter. And I was just like, oh, this is crazy. All this food is just like packaging inside of packaging inside of packaging. And so I was like, oh, what if there was a grocery store that only sold plastic bags? And so... The idea was to just create like an installation of like a big grocery store where everything was made out of plastic bags, all of the fruit and all of the So I'd read that all of the plastic that's ever been made still exists because it, it can't, um, you know, it doesn't biodegrade, nothing eats it. So it just breaks down into smaller and smaller pieces. So, um, and I, you know, thinking about the time of how long, um, a piece of plastic or a plastic bottle might take to decompose under certain conditions, you know, um, not decompose, but break down, uh, that these things are going to be around for a long time. And I was like, oh, well, what if someone like discovered this and they didn't know what it was and um, how might they like misinterpret all of the stuff that we're leaving behind? And uh, um, there's some really very like, ridiculous like silly plastic objects that we use that are just bizarre and like how would they know what they were and so I started to write a show about someone uh, discovering a plastic ball in the future and misinterpreting it and then misinterpreting all this other plastic trash and so that's sort of where I started writing the story and now the story 
it's kind of a three-part story that's that's the ancient past, the present day, and the far off future, and is about artifacts and people leaving stuff behind and sort of the misinterpretation of the past and yeah, a lot of layers. <laughs> um, but all of it takes this whole puppet show is experienced inside this grocery store installation. So it looks like a grocery store. It's in a storefront. Um, but the shelves and everything transforms into a little theater. And so you watch the show take place uh, inside the grocery store. And you all had been working feverishly yeah. to get it ready for its opening in, in Times Square. And uh... it took years, but we were able to uh, uh, find, a, you know, the Times Square Art, the Arts Alliance wanted to produce it. And, and that was a great, journey to get to that point and then once they took it on it was a uh even still a very challenging enterprise to try to find the right storefront um and then we did and uh, you know we worked for years putting all the pieces together um so much logistics so much uh so many hours um and we were just about to open we were actually three days from opening in Times Square and then the shutdown happened um it's all just sitting there right now. And, you know, there have been, when we first shut down, it was like, oh, well, we're gonna come back and open in two months. And then it was like, maybe the fall. And now it's like, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> don't really know what's gonna happen. So now is, it seems like we're getting to a point where it's safe enough for a few people to be in a room together wearing masks. Um, at least so I have a document of the show in case it never happens. Um, or perhaps I have something that I can share digitally with people, um, which is not ideal, but it's where we're at. Yeah, I was so excited to tell people that, and of course, have, are into theater to, to see this, but people that I know who weren't into theater, I was just so excited to let them know that this existed and so many people went and started uh checking out it checking it out on the website and they just were blown away by the idea of it and, and the, the possibility of it based on what they saw and uh i really really hope that uh, people can experience it the way that you you want audiences to experience it yeah me too <laughs> yeah um you know as of now, it's still there. There's the storefront is a donation, but they have not asked for it back. So we're just going to sit there as long as we can and we'll see what happens. Yeah. Um, when you say that everything is made out of plastic bags, yeah. can you, is there any way to actually describe to people that everything is made of plastic bags? Uh, collected all different plastic bags of all different colors and so we sculpted all of the fruit and all of the meat uh and like sushi and everything's made out of plastic bags or other little bits of plastic crap we made these like cupcakes and like tarts with all these like colorful caps decorating them um and then we made a bunch of boxes designed a bunch of like printed cereal boxes that are sort of satirical takes on familiar brands stuffed those boxes full of plastic bags um and so everything everything is all of the items are plastic bags some of them are packaged inside of jars or plastic or boxes but yeah everything is made out of plastic trash how long did it take you to collect all of these plastic bags um you know i i like really seriously collected for like a year wow oh my gosh that's incredible. Um, Robin, thank you for your time today. Uh, before we go, there's one last thing I would love to ask of you. We, we asked like a series of rapid fire questions here at the end that we call the Puppet Hot Pot. The Puppet Hot Pot. So here we go. Uh, question number one. Are there any uh, other hobbies other than the ones you've described that you've taken up here in this, this time at home? Um, well, I've been remodeling my house, so I don't know if it's a hobby, but I, you know, I do light construction. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Awesome. This is one that I always love and, you know, the, take this however you like, but what do you want to be when you grow up? 
A person with health care. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes, preach, preach. What is your favorite thing about pigeons? Oh, I, I just think they're very comical. I think they're very cute, but they're actually very smart. What is one of the favorite places in the world that your work has taken you? It was incredibly fascinating to go to Egypt, for sure. What is a, a form of, of puppetry that maybe you're most excited about right now or makes you excited when you see it? I mean, I'm just really attached to the Bunaku style. Yeah. Um, do you feel like the role of the artist has changed or will change in a post-COVID world? I mean, definitely how we're experiencing the art and how we fund the art is going to change, and I hope not for the worse. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, Robin, I really, really appreciate your time today. Thank you so much for, for chatting with us here on the Puppet Pod. Uh, and if people want to find you um, to look at your work online or if you're on social media, is there anything you would want to uh, share? RobinProHeart.com, but I'm also on Instagram. Amazing. Thank you, Robin. The Puppet Pod, hosted by Josh Rice and me, Sarah Stabley. Produced and engineered by also me, Sarah Stabley. Additional editing by Josh Marks. Theme song and incidental music by Seth Forgolzia. Additional music by Hazar and Scott Holmes. Executive produced by Dixon Place and the New York State Puppet Festival, a program of Shake on the Lake and Josh Rice Projects. Support is provided by Dixon Place, the Jim Henson Foundation, the National Endowment for the Arts, and the Arts Council for Wyoming County Community Arts Grant. This decentralization program is made possible in part with funds from the New York State Council on the Arts with the support of Governor Andrew Cuomo and the New York State Legislature, administered in Wyoming County by the Arts Council for Wyoming County. To make donations, please visit shakeonthelake.org or dixonplace.org. For more information about the artists featured on our podcast, please visit www.thepuppetpod.com. Yeah,